So good morning, Good Shepherd. Some of you are live and some others of you are live stream. However, you are connecting with us today. I'm really glad. I'm Talbot Davis. I'm the pastor of Good Shepherd Church and delighted not only that you're connecting with us today, but this is the third week in this series, a, a series where we're really inviting and encouraging one another so that the People who've been invited into a living relationship with Jesus will become the inviters, the invited, turning them into the inviters. It's called Who's Your One? Uh, real hallmark of the series has been a prayer guide that I'll let you know a little bit more about at the end of our time together. In the meantime, today's message is called The Stakes Are Hot. Not the kind of stakes that you put on the grill, the stakes you put in the ground. The stakes, and they're not just high, they're hot today, and uh, as always, our, the message comes from, hello, the Bible, but this one jumps around just a little bit, if, but from the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to locate Matthew chapter 8, either scroll there on your phone or open your, your Bible that looks like this there, Matthew chapter 8, and then we'll be 23 and 25. If, if you don't have a Bible here or it's not on your phone, it's okay. The words are going to appear up on the screen just when they need to appear. It always happens that way. So grateful for it. And, and we think that's really important because we want you to see the scripture for yourself so that you don't just take my word for it. Because we believe that the, the library that we call the Bible, and the Bible is a library. You may not know that. Not book is library. But we believe something else significant about it, that the same Holy Spirit, whose, whose arrival and birth to the church we celebrate on this Pentecost day, that that same Holy Spirit breathed life into the, to the words of Scripture. He put his truth onto its pages. The Bible at this church, you may still be wrestling with it. It's okay. The Bible is inspired and eternal and true, we believe. And that's why when we're together and when we're talking about the Bible, we do kind of an unusual thing with it. We lift it up. And if you've not been here before or you're not tuned in before and there's phones in the air and Bibles in the air and you're like, whoa, that's a little bit strange. We admit it. We don't try to dance around it and say, oh, that, no, it's completely normal. No, it's a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community. We're a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be let loose in our midst. Amen? And uh, as I pray for this message, I want to invite you to do just one real quick thing for me before I pray. Look to your left. There's maybe a person on your left. Just look at them. And then on your right, look, there's a person there on your right. And if you've got some spaces, some socially distant spaces, go ahead and look around you. And, and uh, now that you have those people in your mind's eye, let's pray. And I want to invite you to pray that the person right now, the person on your left, will get something out of this message. And I want to pray, I want you to pray that the person on your right, that their minds will be stretched and their hearts will be opened and their spirits will soar because of this message. And now for folks who are live streaming, either amongst a crowd or even solo, Lord, I pray that everyone on live stream would be touched with your goodness and understand your joy, even in the middle of a hard topic. In Jesus' name, we pray. 
Amen. So the stakes are hot. Week three of Who's Your One? And we've got a little bit of a dilemma that we start with today. And, and our dilemma is, is rooted kind of in this place, that Jesus, he's popular. Even people who aren't religious, they kind of like Jesus. They may not like his followers, but they like Jesus, like agnostics. And some of you may be agnostic. You're not sure if you believe in God and, and you've shown up for church anyway. And, and, and I was one of you in years past. And, and you, you, you may like Jesus and you happen to like Jesus a lot more than you like Jesus's followers. You like Jesus. He's, you, wish, you wish his followers would live more by his moral teaching than they do. Muslims, they like Jesus. I don't know if you knew this or not, but anytime a Muslim says the name of Jesus, they follow it with peace be to the prophet. And they believe that Jesus's return will in some way usher in the end of times. Now, that, that, that's where we, what happens after Jesus returns where Christians and Muslims disagree, but they like Jesus and they think that he has a role in the end of everything. Hindus, our Hindu friends in India, they like Jesus. They pray to, don't mind if you pray to Jesus. And in fact, Gandhi, the most famous Hindu of them all, he just said that he wished the people who prayed to Jesus would look more like him and less like the British Empire that was colonizing his subcontinent. Buddhists, they like Jesus. And in a lot of ways, they even resemble him with their lack of materialism. Yeah, everywhere there are people who like Jesus, they, whether religious or not, they tend to like Jesus better than they like Jesus' followers. And so when we think about this man, Jesus, he is popular. Can I hear an amen for Jesus is popular? The dilemma comes about when we talk about the subject of Hell, and hell is unpopular. And in fact, for some of you, the subject of hell is so unpopular. Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you're new at church. Maybe you're investigating church. And the, the, any kind of teaching that you've heard about hell is a real obstacle to your belief. It fills you with doubt. And, and others of you, uh, maybe you're a little more skeptical of the faith and the thought that anyone anywhere in the church would still teach about a realm of everlasting punishment, unending torment, that strikes you as so backwards and so barbaric, and it really fills you not just with doubt, but with actual disbelief. Like if, if there are people out there who believe in that kind of place, I'm not gonna believe like they do. And for others of you, it really fills you with even disgust, and, and the thought that a church would, would devote any time in its teaching to try and help its people, invite others into a living relationship with Jesus and get this in parts so that they don't go to hell after they die. I mean, that just fills you with disgust and fills you with contempt and you don't want anything to do with it. It's why Ron Reagan Jr., not the president, the gipper, but his son, Ron Reagan Jr., who's still alive, a couple years ago, he made a commercial 
And it was all about how he was a lifelong atheist and he is not afraid of burning in hell. And you can get the t-shirt even. Ron Reagan Jr., lifelong atheist, not afraid of hell. And it was one of the most in-your-face, from Ronald Reagan's son, one of the most in-your-face commercials that I have ever seen. So where does that leave us? Jesus is popular. Hell unpopular. And so we have a dilemma. And because of that dilemma, there are people within the church. And, and again, we've, we've today have, have spoken not so much about this church, but the church global. There are people within the church who think if we can just separate the love of Jesus here from the wrath of hell here, that we will all be much better off. That we will save Jesus from his public relations problem of being at all implied with hell. And, and we will make for, if we're on the inside of the church, we, we won't have some unsettledness about our beliefs. And, and if, we're, if we're outside the church and trying to win people outside the church, we're like, okay, you know, you, you used to say, no Jesus, no peace. Well, now the new saying is, no hell, no problem. Because because hell does bring up some really thorny questions. Questions like, well, why is the punishment so much greater than the crime? Have you ever thought of this? That, that, that for people who believe in hell, churches that teach in hell, you got an average life of 70 years, let's say, and into that 70 years, you got a lot of goodness, you got a few low points, some badness, and, and the result for, for not being born again enough, or not being surrendered enough, the, 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 the punishment for 70 years of meh is an eternity of torment? It just doesn't seem right, seems out of kilter. Or, or a question like, why would a God of love express so much wrath? Or even a question that some of you have, might have asked yourselves, if people I love will be in hell, why in the world would I want to go to heaven? And so these kinds of questions have really led people to do their very best to separate the love of Jesus from the wrath of hell because there's doubt and there's disbelief and there's disgust when people consider hell. We're in a dilemma. And, and one more thing that people often try to do with this thing called hell, they try to domesticate it. I don't, I don't know if you've know, known this or not, but a, a lot of the ways that we try to grapple with the severity of whatever it is that the Bible and Christianity teaches about hell is we really try to diminish it. We, we, like we turn it into a swear word. Have you noticed that the people who use it as a swear word the most, like what the? Well, who the do you think you are? Where the are my reading glasses? It, 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 Come on, you said that this morning. <laughs> Even it's, today, it's going to be hotter than. Well, the people who use the word the most as a swear word believe in it as a place the least. And it's almost as if the more we say it, the less we believe in it. And even if we, we don't try to diminish it or downplay it that way, we, we, we turn it in, you know, you got some oldies, but goodies that 
people have told about the hell. Like, you may have heard of the woman on the airplane and she's a, she had a living relationship with Jesus Christ and she's there on the plane reading her Bible and sitting next to her is a cynic and he's a little bit aggressive and he goes, well, what are you reading? And, and she says, Jonah. And he says, do you really believe that? Guy lives in the belly of a whale for three days. How in the world did he survive that? And the woman is a little bit humble and, and, and she's like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll just ask him when I get to heaven. And, and, and the guy goes, well, what if Jonah didn't make it to heaven? And she says, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's an oldie and it's a, it's a goodie. And, and that's what we do with hell because we've got popular Jesus and we've got unpopular hell and the great dilemma in thinking about sharing our faith is how in the world can we reconcile is it possible to reconcile should we not just separate the two to make our our sales job a little bit easier the issue with that just one problem there, there is just one problem with trying to separate the love of Jesus from the wrath of hell just one and you know what it is? Who is the person in the biblical library who talks about hell more than anyone else? And the answer is, it's not the mean God of the Old Testament, another myth we believe. And the answer is that it's not even that Pharisee Paul. The answer is that the one who speaks more about hell than anyone else in the biblical library is, drum roll please, it's Jesus Jesus meek and my, Jesus who is, hello, the good shepherd. You're like, that's where that church got its name? Yes, Jesus who is the good shepherd. He talks about hell more than anyone else in scripture. And you, you may know about this. There, there's a group of people out today called Red Letter Christians. And they're like, oh, if we can just, just because Jesus's words in, in a Bible that look like this are often in red letters to separate them from the other words that are in the black letters. And there people say, let's just be red letter Christians. Let's just be uh, about the words of Jesus. Then we won't have to mess with all that sticky stuff that Paul taught us in the black letters. Let's just be red letter Christians and everything will be sweet and nice and wonderful. There's only one problem. In case you can't tell, I think the red letter Christians are full of such baloney. Some of you thought I was going to go worse than that, didn't you? Because I've already been using hell out there. But, but there's a problem even with red letter Christians. Listen to what Jesus says in the red letters. It starts at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 12. But the subjects of the kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Same gospel, Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, where Jesus apparently did not sign up for Dale Carnegie's How to Win, Win Friends and Influence People because look what he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how long will you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 25, verse 41, near the end of a story called the parable of the sheep and the goats and look what Jesus says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You might want to underline that, prepared for the devil and his angels. Same chapter, verse 46, Jesus puts it this way, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 
Over at the Gospel of Mark, Jesus continues speaking. And look what he says. He, he uses an exaggeration of what you do to yourself so that you will avoid the reality of what awaits on the other side. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. That's exaggeration. He's not literally recommending we do that. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Verse 47, 48, same chapter. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. Again, exaggeration. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown where? Into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Oh my Lord. All of us who've wanted at any level to separate the love of Jesus from the wrath of hell, thinking there's somehow at polar opposites, we have to grapple with these very difficult words. When we're thinking about who's our one, who is it that we want to share our faith with, with avoiding what Jesus is talking about has to be huge, enormous on the list of reasons we give people to say yes to a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And it turns out, that, that all of us who've been wrestling with this and all of us who, who have thought we could save Jesus from his public relations nightmare if we just get hell out of what it is that the church teaches, it, it turns out maybe we ought to spend less time telling God what kind of God he needs to be. And maybe we really ought to ponder some of the implications of what we want if we were to eliminate hell from the church's vocabulary. Because think about it, Good Shepherd. What parent would you respect less than a parent who never punished his or her children and only indulged them? That when their child, toddler, runs out into the street, just sits back and says, well, they got to learn sometime. Or what boss would you hold in more contempt? than the boss who continued to enable the misbehavior of one employee and never held him to the same kind of accountability as everybody else. What coach would you want fired more quickly than that coach who's got one prima donna player who brings it on the field, but everybody knows they're poison in the locker room and the coach lets them get away with it. I, I would say you would have no respect for those parents full of contempt for that boss and you'd want that coach fired yesterday. Why? Because they didn't hold anyone to account of a world where can't we all just get along and a world, a world where there is only blessing and no accountability and no punishment is not really a world that we want to live in. And apply it to God. What kind of God would we have if villains were never held to any account and their victims just had to deal with it? What, what, what kind of God would we have if Hitler and bin Laden and Chairman Mao, after they died, they all had mansions on streets of gold waiting for them? 
because when push came to shove, God was just like an all shucks kind of God who couldn't really even conceive of hell, much less send anyone there. What kind of God would we have if that's the way that he operated and villains always got away with it and victims always had to deal with it? That would be a God who's not worthy of our respect and that would be a God who in some ways is even a monster. And it's so interesting it's so interesting as I, as I look about the global church and who is it who's asking these questions? Who is it who's wanting to separate the love of Jesus from the wrath of hell? Do you know where those questions tend to get asked? <laughs> they tend to get asked in, in modern, affluent, Western democracies. Like, hello, the United States of America where we have leisure time on our hands and we have time to ponder these highfalutin questions and we have the audacity to try to tell God what kind of God he ought to be. In the two-thirds world, the emerging world, you know, those lands on other continents where the church is actually exploding and they're simply preoccupied with surviving, they don't have time to ask such highfalutin questions. And they have such visceral experience with villains that they don't mind believing in the reality of hell. Like the people in Pastor Adwan Lindondwe's church, they don't have a trouble believing in hell. You know who he was? He was a Nigerian pastor who in the early months of 2020 was beheaded by Boko Haram the Nigerian version of ISIS. And the reason that he was beheaded is because he would not renounce his Lord. And no, 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 no. The people in his church have no trouble believing that there is an ultimate vengeance that awaits. They have no trouble believing in eternal punishment. Maybe, maybe because more than a lot of us who spent our, most of our lives in North America, they've seen hell on earth. Or our pastors in India, we prayed for them this morning. They, they don't have any trouble believing in hell. It's only people in modern, affluent Western democracies who question God this way. And the deal is, those other folks, they're not less advanced than we are. They're just less spoiled. You know what else? When you think, we gotta separate the love of Jesus from the wrath of hell, that reduces the love of Jesus to mere sentimentality. It reduces Jesus to a Hallmark card. Oh, no God I know. No, no God of my truth would send anybody. To, well, there's not a God you know. There's a God who is. And believe me, there's not a God of your truth. There's a God who's true. And it reduces Jesus's love to such sentimentality, to a hallmark card, which makes kind of sense why we're vulnerable to it, because a lot of us are hallmark cardy kind of Christians. That we open up a card that makes us feel good, it makes us feel sweet. Ah, that, 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 that's what it means to be a Christian. Well, no, no, that's not an accurate depiction of the love of Jesus, because as much when, when I, and, and in my time as a Christian and as a pastor, yeah. Some of you are going to, I was about to say, hell yeah. <laughs> I've wanted to stop believing in hell. I've wanted to stop 
having to worry about hell. I, I wanted to stop feeling the imperative that hell gives. But I don't bump up just against the words of Jesus, the red letter words. I bump against the deeds of Jesus, specifically the cross of Jesus. Because eliminating hell diminishes the cross. Think about it with me. If, if hell's just a figment of ancient, unadvanced, unspoiled people's imagination, and everybody goes to heaven in the end anyway, well, the cross becomes the ultimate hoax on the part of God. If we didn't really need to be rescued and redeemed and ransomed in the most gruesome way possible, then the cross becomes a trick played by the Father on the Son. And the cross becomes no longer the place where the Son is the victor. He's the victim. And he's the victim of the Father's own trick. I'm not willing to believe in that kind of God, the Father, Son, or the Spirit. And we've got crosses here at the Moss campus. And our crosses are, are, are not just to remind us of some good feelings. Our crosses are so that we never escape. We preached Christ and him crucified. And the reason we preach Christ and him crucified is because on that cross, in those moments, what did Jesus cry out? What did he call out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So on the cross, he went through everything that is outside. He endured all the fury and all the wrath, all in a moment, all as our substitute, the divine mystery of how it is that he gets what we deserve. And he did all of that, not because Jesus's love is sentimental. Jesus's love is broken and bloody and earthy. And yeah, Jesus's love and Jesus's wrath are not so very far apart, good shepherd. He took all of that in our, Jesus went through hell on earth so that we don't have to go there after earth. Because here's, here's where it all lands. Every one of us who's wondered how can the love of Jesus and the wrath of hell coexist? Popular Jesus, unpopular hell. How can it coexist? Here it is. Hell does not contradict the love of Jesus. Hell completes it. Hell is not at odds with the love of Jesus. Hell is really the ultimate fulfillment of the love of Jesus because Jesus's love purifies, Jesus's love vindicates, and Jesus's love ensures that villains will not get away with their villainy and victims will not just have to bear it. Jesus's love is not at odds with hell. Jesus's love is completed in hell because we don't, we don't have a God who, who enables. We don't have a God who's a monster. We don't have a God who says to Bin Laden or Hitler or Chairman Man, oh, shucks, just come on in anyway. I don't have the gumption to hold you accountable. Nope. Hell does not contradict the love of Jesus. Hell completes it. And even, even that question that you may have wondered about, the question that I brought earlier, well, well, isn't the punishment greater than the crime? Why for the crime of, of, time, of, of, of sins committed within a finite period of time, 70 years, let's say, is there a punishment that's infinite? 
Well, that's the wrong question. Because look again at, at Matthew 25, 41, where it says this, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, where Jesus says this, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, what? Prepared for the devil and his angels. You know what that means? Who, who was hell created for? It was created for Satan and his legions, and God only reluctantly sends people there but that lets us know, because it's created for Satan and his legions, that rebellion continues in hell. That the hatred of everything about God continues to this day in the realms of hell. That, that rebellion and opposition to God and objections to God and the celebration of everything wicked and nothing good, it's going on right now in hell. So actually... Souls, demons, Satan who are being punished in hell, they're being punished for rebellion that continues to this very moment. Because what, what has been the desire of the human race from the beginning? Do you remember in the, in the garden, what was the temptation? You can be like God. You can be in charge. And so in a real sense, God says, well, have at it. Here's a realm where you and you alone are in charge and it's bedlam and it's awful. And it's why in Luke chapter 16, when Jesus tells the story about the rich man and, and Lazarus and, and, and they just wants a cup of water to, to quench his parched tongue, there is no water available because every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above and hell is the absence of every good gift. Hell is the absence of everything that ever has anything to do with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And hell is the ultimate and the eternal God forsaken place. And a few of you are feeling maybe a little bit better now. Whoo, Lisey's not talking about those flames. At least hell is just the absence of God, the emptiness of God. Well, whether it's flames or, or whether, whether it's absence of God or utter darkness, all those biblical words are metaphors for whatever it is really like. But think about a metaphor. Is, is the metaphor greater than the thing it describes or less than? Like the metaphor for the fact that I have been married for almost 37 years is my wedding ring. Well, which is greater, this little circle of gold or the marriage, hopefully the beautiful marriage that it represents? Hello, it's the marriage, is it not? And in the same way, whatever the metaphor of flames or emptiness or darkness hints at the reality, the reality, so much worse. And that's why when we think about who is our one, yeah, Encouraging them to escape whatever the reality is, the metaphor is pointing at, needs to be foremost on our minds. Hell does not contradict the love of Jesus. It completes it. It completes it in a purifying, everlasting way. And I've talked, I've talked about the Bin Ladens and I've talked about the Hitlers and I've, I've, I've talked about the Chairman Mao's and you've been like, woo, glad I know where they're going. Well, where's the line? And most of you, if you're asked, you know, if hell is about, you know, bad and good, 
Where's the line? And, and, and you get at, well, it's just the other side of me. <laughs> Hear this. Hell is not for bad people. Hell is for unbought people. Hell is for unsurrendered people. Hell is for people who at any level are trusting in their goodness rather than trusting in Jesus's greatness. Because the best of your, the best person here, the goodest person here, your goodness isn't very good. Why trust that when you can trust Jesus's greatness, which I assure you is absolutely bloody perfect. Because I don't want you at the end of your days, I don't want you experiencing the love of Jesus from afar. I don't want you undergoing its ferocity. I instead want you to be overwhelmed with its goodness and its joy. Because for all of us, the love of God will either be, it will either be a marvelous light or a consuming fire, the choice is yours. Let's pray. So Father, thank you that in your justice and in your truthfulness, your love is really completed when sin receives its ultimate punishment. And I pray, God, that that would fill us with awe, with fear, with wonder, and with joy. Because this is the God we trust, and this is the God in whom we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.